and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show where I discuss the Star Wars Legends line of books. I'm Aaron Motes. Today, we take a jump forward in time to just after Revenge of the Sith. It's Kenobi by John Jackson Miller. On the last episode, I mentioned how many books were in the Legends timeline, so I did a little research. I did not count up the number of children's books, but I found 176 adult and young adult novels and four short stories that were released in ebook format. To the best of my knowledge, I've read 151 of the books and three of the short stories. The majority of the stuff I haven't read takes place between The Phantom Menace and A New Hope in the timeline. So I still have about 25 books to go. And we'll knock out one of those today with Kenobi. So that's pretty cool. Now before we start, if you'd like to contact me, you can send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Ask me a question. Tell me what you like about the show. Tell me what you think can be improved. Whatever. I really want to hear from you folks. Plus, I'm still gathering questions for a listener question episode, hopefully in the near future. We're up to four questions in the queue. I'd like to get to seven or eight before I record an entire show. Now, with that out of the way, it's time for today's book discussion. Kenobi by John Jackson Miller. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Kenobi is told in four parts. In part one, we're introduced to the Pika Oasis, a moisture farming community on Tatooine, near the capital city of Beston. The leader of the settlers is Oren Galt, one of the largest landowners. To protect the farms from attacks by Tusken Raiders, Galt forms the Settlers Call Fund, an emergency response alarm system intended to mobilize the farmers into a local militia. It's a subscription service that settlers can buy into, so they don't have to worry about defending their farms themselves or paying for private security. Galt runs the Settlers Call Fund and his other businesses out of an office at Danner's Claim, a general store-slash-restaurant and bar run by Annaline Caldwell and her two children, Callie and Jabe. The story begins with Galt and his militia responding to an early morning alarm of a Tuscan attack at one of the outer moisture farms, the Tuscans kill two people, but the militia arrives in time to save the young couple that own the farm and their baby. Galt's militia kills a few of the Tuscans and chases the others into the rocky cliffs of the Junlin Waste nearby. After the battle, the settlers return to Danner's claim to drink and celebrate. While the militia celebrates at the bar, Annaline watches her daughter Callie at the stable behind Danner's claim working with a young dewback. But the reptile breaks through the stable's fence, trapping Callie's foot in the stirrup and carries the young woman out of the settlement. Annaline jumps on her own dewback and pursues Callie toward the Rumbles, an area where the Junlin Wastes meets the Dune Sea. Sarlaccs are known to live there, and Annaline races to catch her daughter before she makes it to the dangerous area. Annaline leaps onto Callie's dewback, but the reptile refuses to stop running. As Annaline tries to free her daughter, a robed figure appears beside them, riding an Eopi. The man saves the two Caldwell women just before Callie's mount stumbles into the mouth of a Sarlacc. The robed man arrives at Danner's claim the next day. 
He says his name is Ben, and he just recently moved into a homestead on the edge of the Dune Sea. On his way home, he meets Oren, who tells Ben more about the Pika Oasis, the militia, and how much territory the militia protects. Galt tries to sell Ben on the settler's call fund, but the stranger declines. Part two of the story begins in Danner's claim. Anlin is serving food to Weil Ulbrecht, the old miser that owns the largest moisture farm in the area. Ulbrecht is one of the few holdouts to join the settler's call militia, but that doesn't stop Oren Galt from trying to sell him on the service every time they meet. But today, Galt is headed into Moss Eisley on business. After Galt departs, Annalene leaves her daughter in charge of the store while she goes to deliver the supplies that Ben left there a few days before. She asks Ben where he's from and why he's living so far out here near the Dune Sea, but the stranger never answers directly, saying he really has no story, nothing interesting anyway. Annalene asks Ben if he's going to attend the upcoming pod race in Mas Espa. If not, she says he can stop back at the store and pick up any other supplies. He takes her up on the offer and returns to Danner's claim, finding the oasis empty. Most of the other settlers have gone to Mas Espa to watch the race, leaving Annalene alone in the store. The two chat about the oasis, while Annalene tries to get Ben to tell her a little more about himself and what he's doing on Tatooine. She can tell Ben isn't a moisture farmer, but his answers are vague. When Annalena asks if something happened to Ben in the past, he responds cryptically, No, not to me. Later, the two go out to the moisture evaporator behind the store and fill up Ben's water keg. As they start loading up the supplies to head to Ben's homestead, the settlers start returning from the Moss Espa pod race. Many are drunk, including Annalene's son, Jabe, who wrecks their land speeder into the wall of the store's garage. In the confusion of the fender bender and the settlers returning, a group of Tuscan raiders attack the oasis. The Tuscans attack from all sides, trapping one group of settlers led by Ulbrecht inside the store and another group led by Ben, Oren, Annalene, and their children behind the store near the garage. As the fighting inside the store escalates, Ben grabs a fire extinguisher from the garage wall and runs inside. Annalene and Galt watch in awe from the surveillance cams in the garage. They see several customers on the floor of the store dead, with Ulbrecht behind the counter firing at the surrounding Tuscans. Suddenly a fog fills the screen as Ben empties the fire extinguisher into the store. The scene devolves into chaos with blaster bolts flying in all directions. But suddenly a blue light appears, flashing everywhere in the fog. Quickly, the red bolts stop. Galt runs to the front door. As the haze clears, Galt finds Ben holding the fire extinguisher and Ulbrecht behind the counter, blaster in hand. On the floor, the bodies of a dozen dead Tuscans. When Galt asks what happened, Ben says that he saw Ulbrecht had the situation under control, but all the old man needed was a diversion. He says the fire extinguisher distracted the sand people, allowing Ulbrecht to take out the raiding party. The end of the fighting in the store allows Annalene to get her remote for the settler's call alarm from the cash box. She sounds the alarm, calling the militia members from the outlying farms and sending the Tuscans fleeing. When the settlers form up near the store, they begin to question the settler's call fund. Is it really keeping them safe? A few threaten to cancel their subscriptions, but Galt implores them to reconsider. 
The settlers' call works, he says. The Tuscans attacked with the largest raiding party anyone had seen in decades, but they fled when the militia was called in. They're headed back to the Junlin Wastes. If we go now, we can wipe them out once and for all. Now, later that evening, Anilin returns to the store to find the militia celebrating their great victory. 48 dead Tuscans and the survivors scattered into the Junlin Wastes. She tells her son he shouldn't revel in so much death, but Jabe snaps back, telling Annalene that at least he did something, unlike her, who he says did nothing when the Tuscans killed Danner eight years ago. Fuming, Jabe stalks off to bed early, leaving Annalene to stare and shake her head. Early the next morning, Callie enters the store. Kenobi, she shouts. Ben's name is Kenobi. When Annalene asks how her daughter knows this, Callie says that when Annalene told her the day before to take the light van and transport the Tuscan bodies out of the store and out of the oasis, Callie saw her mother and Ben heading toward Ben's hut. She followed, but the light van was a lot slower than their speeder. And when Callie got near Ben's hut, she saw her mother's speeder had already left. Callie says she snuck up on the hut and heard Ben talking to someone, calling himself Kenobi. And she says she saw Ben put something away in a trunk, but she couldn't get a good look at it. Annalene scolds her daughter for spying on Ben, but she's also intrigued. Who is Ben Kenobi? Why is he here? And why is he being so mysterious? As part two ends, a gang of thugs arrives at Danner's claim looking for Galt. They say he owes them money. But before it gets too heated, Galt ushers the gang leader into his back office, leaving Annalene wondering what in the world is going on. Part 3 begins with Galt giving Annalene a birthday gift, a day off work. She and her children get to spend the day in Moss Eisley. Annalene's surprised and a little suspicious, but she decides to take advantage of the offer, and she heads off to town with Callie and Jabe in tow. Along the way, they pass Ben heading to Beston to buy a new coolant pump. Annalene says he'll get faster service in Moss Eisley, and the Caldwells offer Ben a seat in the light van and head to town. They enjoy an afternoon of sightseeing and people watching in Moss Eisley, in addition to picking up Oren's birthday gift to Annalene, a brand new land speeder to replace the one Jay wrecked into after he and the Gults returned to the Oasis following the Moss Espa pod race. It's a big gift, and while it's very generous, Annalene knows there's another meaning behind it. She tells Ben that for years, Oren has let his feelings for her known. He wants to marry Annalene to unite their families and their bank accounts. But she tells Ben she's not interested. Oren may be a great man in the Pico Oasis, but great men aren't necessarily good men. As the four cruise through the town, Annalene sees two familiar faces on the other side of a plaza. It's Owen Lars and his wife, Baru. Look, says Callie, they've had a baby. Ben turns in his seat, keeping his eyes down on the floor. When Callie suggests they call the young couple over, the land speeder lurches forward suddenly, knocking Annalene back in her seat and Callie tumbling out of the vehicle and onto the street. Jabe struggles with the control stick as the speeder zooms through the streets, finally stopping the speeder in a shady neighborhood several blocks from the plaza. As they turn to head back and find Callie, Ben and Annalene see another vehicle stop one block away. 
they see Oren led out at gunpoint and ushered into a building. Ben tells Annalene and Jabe to go pick Callie up. He's going to help Galt. Oren is taken into a large room and presented in front of Mosep Benid, a nimbinal representing the crime lord Jabba the Hutt. Nervously, Oren looks around the room, surrounded by Jabba's thugs. There's also a flapping, screeching noise coming from the rafters. Those are caven whistlers, says Mosep, carnivorous flying reptiles. Mosep says Jabba feeds the whistlers, those that don't repay their debts, and Oren is behind on his. Sweating, Galt asks Mosep for more time. The harvest is soon, and this year's yield promises to be a big one. But Mosep says Jabba no longer wants to do business with Oren and gives him two weeks to pay off his debt. Oren tries to flee, but a pair of Klatuinians grab him and throw him to the floor. They're about to really teach him a lesson when suddenly the cave and whistler cage crashes down, sending Jabba's men flailing. Oren slides under a desk and watches the room devolve into chaos. The whistlers attack Jabba's henchmen, scratching at their eyes and tearing their flesh. The screams are deafening. The reptiles kill three of the henchmen, but eventually one opens a door. He runs, leading the whistlers down a hallway. Orin starts to emerge from under the desk when one of the remaining thugs steps in front of him. The gossam pulls his blaster, but before he can fire, Orin hears something land on the desk above him. The thug shouts at the being on the desk, raising his blaster. Suddenly, the gossam flies across the room and slams into the far wall with a crunch. Speechless, Oren emerges from beneath the desk and turns to see whoever attacked the henchman, but nothing's there. Quickly, Oren runs to the door, passing an injured Mosep. As he leaves, the Nimbinol shouts out, Now Oren only has 24 hours to pay Jabba. Oren stumbles into the street where he finds his children waiting for him, and Annalene standing with them. Annalene sees how flustered Oren is and asks what's going on but he's evasive, saying it was a business deal that didn't pan out. As she starts to protest, Ben approaches the scene. Surprised, Orrin asks what he's doing there. Ben says the Caldwells gave him a ride to town. As they were driving around in Annalene's new speeder, they saw Orrin being taken into the building down the street. Ben says he went to investigate but couldn't find a way in. Orrin then notices the new speeder and excitedly asks if Annalene likes it. When she says yes, Oren tells her he can give her anything she wants. Marry me, Annalene, he shouts. What? Marry you? Annalene can't believe it. Please, says Oren. They can combine their households, be the wealthiest family in the Pika Oasis. Stunned, Annalene says she'll need time to think about it. Fine, says Oren, but he wants her answer soon. Oren and his children go, leaving Annalene, Ben, and her children in stunned silence. Part 4 of the book begins at Wild Ulbrecht's farm. Four Tuscan raiders sneak up on the homestead. After the Tuscans stole a water evaporator two days before, Ulbrecht sent most of his guards out into the fields to protect them from the harvest. Now there's only one guard left at the homestead to guard Ulbrecht and his wife Magda. The Tuscans attack from two sides, jumping the guard and knocking him unconscious. Albrecht takes a rifle butt to the face, then watches in horror as the lead Tuscan holds a knife to his wife's throat. Just then, a figure jumps from the porch roof, knocking the knife-wielding Tuscan to the ground. 
The man grabs a gaffy stick and knocks the two raiders holding Magna to the ground as well. Standing, the lead Tuscan rips his head bandages off and stares at Ulbricht's savior, Kenobi. Ben stares back at Oren, telling him it's over. Galt raises his blaster and fires, but Kenobi turns out of the way. Just then, Oren sees Ulbricht's truck speeding away from the house toward the guard barracks. The jig is up. Oren's son Mullen and daughter Vika jump onto their speeder bikes and flee. As Oren and Jabe reach their speeders, a band of real Tusken Raiders appear, grabbing Jabe and knocking him out. Oren evades the Raiders and speeds away on his bike. He turns back to see the Tuscans holding a huge stone over Jabe's unconscious body. Orn arrives at Danner's claim in the middle of the night to find Annalene pacing the floor. She asks him if he knows where Jabe is, but Orn ignores her. He asks her again to marry him. She screams that Orn isn't making any sense, but he grabs her and stops her. Orn tells Annalene about the money he owes the banks in Beston. He took out huge loans to buy up the lands around the Pico Oasis and installed dozens of moisture evaporators, but the harvest was terrible the last few seasons. So to pay back the banks, Oren took a loan from Jabba the Hutt. Now the crime lord wants his money. Oren says they can marry and then mortgage Danner's claim to pay Jabba. Annalene refuses, but Oren has another idea. If Annalene won't marry him, then he'll just marry Callie. As long as the store is in the family, the plan will work. Shocked at his audacity, Annalene screams at Oren to leave. But he grabs her pleading that Jabba's goons are coming to kill him. She pushes him away as Callie runs in from the back, helping her mother. Sadly, Oren shakes his head. You two just don't get it, do you? He says. Jabe is dead. Ben approaches the Tuscans standing over Jabe and asks to return him to Annalene. Ayark refuses, saying the boy must die to pay for the crimes the settlers have inflicted on the Tuscans. Ben asks what she's talking about, and Aark says that Oren and his gang have been disguising themselves as raiders for years, attacking the settlers. The farmers blame the Tuscans, hunt them down, and kill them. Ben says that if Aark lets him take Jabe back to his mother, he'll deliver Oren to her, and the Tuscans can have their justice. Aark agrees, but with one stipulation. If Ben cannot deliver Oren Galt, he must join the Tuscans like Sherrod Het did. Ben agrees. Annalene and Callie stare at Orin. Jabe is dead? He can't be dead. The Tuscans killed him, Orin said. Annalene asks why Orin didn't tell her this when he first entered the store. It's because she needed to understand how much trouble he's in with Jabba, Orin says. The Caldwell women are incredulous. Oren continues to explain how much trouble he's in when the front door opens and Jabe walks in. Annalene and Callie rush to his side. Jabe says Ben saved him from the Tuscans. He convinced them to let Jabe go and then brought Jabe back to the oasis. The mention of Ben's name makes Oren nervous. Kenobi saw him lead the attack on the Ulbrecht farm. Why wouldn't he expose Oren to Annalene and the settlers? But it really doesn't matter now. Kenobi must be dealt with, and Oren must deal with him quickly. After Oren leaves, Jabe tells his mother everything, 
how Orne and his crew would dress as Tuscans and attack the farmers to scare them into subscribing to the Settlers Call militia. Nobody ever got seriously hurt, he says, just roughed up a little. But after the meeting with Mosep, Orne got spooked. He needed a lot of money, and Ulbrecht was the richest farmer in the Oasis. Anling can't believe the story, and that her son is a part of it. After her children go to bed, Anlene sits at the bar to think. Soon, Ben enters and tells Anlene everything he's discovered about Orin. The bad loans, the fake Tuscan raids, and the killing of real Tuscans. And how he's embezzled money from Anlene and Danner's claim. But Ben has a plan to stop Orin. He tells Anlene to pack everything up. He says Orin will soon come for him and she and her children will need to leave the oasis forever. Day breaks, and Oren rallies the settlers, telling them that Kenobi led the Tuscans on an attack at the Ulbrecht farm. His speech whips the crowd into a frenzy, and they head to Kenobi's hut. As they approach, Mullen spots the traitor fleeing over the dunes on a speeder bike, heading into the Junlin Wastes. They stop at the opening of a mountain pass, shouting for Kenobi to come down, the ground begins to rumble, and the settlers look around, fearing a groundquake. But no, it's a bantha stampede. The animals run down the pass, sending the settlers diving for cover and slamming the speeders into the rocky walls. As the dust clears, Kenobi's voice echoes down from above. He shouts for Orn to tell the settlers about the fake Tuscan attacks, how Orn used the farmers to pay into the settlers' call fund and then how he stole money from the fund to try and pay off his debts. The farmers turn their gaze to Orin, but he tells them that Kenobi's lying. Orin's one of them. He helps protect them from the raiders. And he doesn't need to steal money. His harvests provide them with all the money he needs. Well, that's good to hear, shouts a voice from behind the militia. They turn. It's Mosep and a speeder of thugs. Jabba wants his money, Mosep says, and he wants it now. Orin stares in disbelief at Jabba's minions and Annaline. She led them here. He can't believe what's happening. But just then, a shot rings out, and one of the thugs on Mosep's speeder falls dead. The scene soon erupts into chaos as the settlers and Jabba's men fire at one another. Orin takes advantage of the situation, grabbing Annaline and his children, jumping in their speeder and bounding up the mountain pass after Kenobi. They race up the rocky terrain until the speeder stabilizers die, but it doesn't matter. They're away from the fighting down below. Orin leaves Mullen and Vika to guard Annaline. He needs to find Kenobi and silence him. Orin turns a corner and walks into a rocky area with several stone pillars. He begins firing at the pillars, hoping to flush Kenobi from wherever he's hiding. But the ground quakes again, and Orin sees the pillars start to topple. A cloud of dust engulfs Orin as he scrambles for cover from the falling rocks. As the dust clears, Orin looks up as Kenobi stands over him. Kenobi tells Orin he needs to accept responsibilities for his crimes. Only then can he start to make amends. Just then, a howl echoes through the rocks. Kenobi spins around. It's a crate dragon, awakened by the noise of the fighting and the bantha stampede, and it's headed right for them. Terrified, Orin watches the crate bear down on them. It rips through the stone pillars, sending rocks and dust everywhere. The monster slams through the pillar in front of the man, and the rocks rain down. But instead of crushing him, 
Orin stares in awe as Kenobi raises his hands and stops the rocks in midair. Orin watches Kenobi push the stones aside and then step in front of the crate and ignite a blue flame, a lightsaber. Kenobi slashes the crate and leaps away as the beast attacks. Orin watches Kenobi leap on top of the dragon, infuriating it. The crate spins, lashing at the human on its back. Kenobi jumps down and starts slashing the monster. Slash, jump, slash, jump, slash, jump. Enraged, the crate stops and tries to grab the tiny thing that's hurting it. But that allows Kenobi to leap on the monster's back, plunging his lightsaber into its neck. The crate roars, then shudders, then collapses, dying. A Jedi, thinks Orin. He's here to kill me. Orin sprints back to the speeder. There, he finds Mullen dead and Vika missing. While he was busy looking for Kenobi, the Tuscans had attacked, killing his son and sending his daughter running. Orin jumps past Annalene and starts the speeder down the mountain, but with the stabilizers gone, he can't keep control. Orin and the speeder go over the edge of the pass, tumbling onto the rocks below. The story ends with Annalene and her children leaving Tatooine and Kenobi returning to his hut. He meditates and speaks to the memory of his former master, Qui-Gon Jinn. No more distractions, Kenobi says. He's looked in on the Lars homestead, and the baby is safe. He promises to keep watch over the boy, and he'll continue to meditate. He'll be ready when it's time for the boy to embrace his destiny. It's time for a break. When we return, I'll give my opinions about what I liked, what I didn't like, and we'll take a look at all the stuff in the book that could make it into the Kenobi series on Disney+. Plus. I'm Aaron Motes. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Hey, everybody. Let me take a moment to recommend a book from Star Wars canon, Dark Disciple by Christy Golden. Based on unproduced scripts from the Clone Wars TV show, Dark Disciple features Asajj Ventress and Jedi Quinlan Voss joining forces to try to assassinate Count Dooku. Ventress wants retribution from her dark past as Dooku's apprentice, but she must balance her fury with her former master and her growing feelings for Voss. Can a former Sith and a Jedi join forces to take down the dark side's greatest warrior and leader of the Separatists? Find out in Dark Disciple by Christy Golden. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. Now let's talk about the good, the bad, and the intriguing from Kenobi by John Jackson Miller. Let me start off by saying that I started reading the Legends books way back in the early 90s, and I was a young teenager at the time, and I really liked the aspects of Legends that were really fast-paced. You know how George Lucas said that a lot of his original ideas for Star Wars were the Adventure of the Week serials, the Flash Gordon-type shows from when he was growing up. And that's one of the things that appealed to me about the Legends stories. I will say, if I read this book at that time, I would probably have 
had a lot of harsh words to say about Kenobi. It is not the type of story that I would have enjoyed when I was younger. I appreciate the fact that the first time I'm reading this book, I'm 42 years old. And I'm more interested in why people do things and not just the things that happen. That being said, there are portions of this book that I still find fairly boring. Now, I understand what the author, John Jackson Miller, is trying to do. This story is mostly a character analysis of Kenobi following the events of Revenge of the Sith. The book was published in 2013, so we have a Kenobi that is only weeks, maybe months after the duel with Anakin on Mustafar, the fall of the Jedi Order, the death of Padme, and delivering Luke and Leia to Tatooine and Alderaan, respectively. It's a look at a man who is racked with guilt over the events that have taken place. I like the portions of the book where Kenobi is meditating. I think there should have been a few more of those. They were mostly spent for the end of each part of the book. You know, four parts of the book. There were four, maybe five parts where Kenobi is meditating and trying to talk to his former master, Qui-Gon Jinn. We, if you remember, at the end of Revenge of the Sith, one of the things Yoda tells Kenobi is he has something new to study in the Force, a way to a way to communicate with fallen Jedi who have become one with the cosmic force. So that is one of the things that Kenobi's doing. And I wish there were, and I wish there was a little more of that. I liked some of the questions Kenobi was asking of himself. What am I doing? Have I failed? Qui-Gon, can you help me understand the point of all this. It's honestly the thoughts of a broken man, or at least a nearly broken man. I mean, this is a short amount of time after everything that Kenobi finds important has been ripped away from him. So that's one of the things I really did like about the book. I also did like the Western feel I'm not saying it's a Larry McMurtry type of read, you know, but there are some aspects of that, of life on the range. And, you know, if you go back to everything we know of Tatooine in the way it's depicted in the movies and on the various shows and books, it's basically life in the American West in the late 1800s. I've always liked Westerns you know, Western movies. And there's a lot of this book that makes me think of those. It's a hard scrabble life. These are people who are trying to eke out a living in a harsh wilderness. And they're trying to eke out this living while also dealing with the natives that live in this land. 
Now, I'm not going to talk about the morality of the settlers and the Tuscans. I think everyone kind of gets the metaphor there. But I like how the general store and the bar are the center of town, that the owner of the place, in this case, Annaline, is one of the more important people in the town. Everyone respects her. Everyone likes her. And we have the caricature of the small-town sheriff-slash-mayor in Oren. He's the big fish in the small pond, and he likes being the big fish in the small pond. So those are the type of things I like about the book. You know, one of the things of the book, though, that did not really appeal to me, though, was the actual plot line. You know, Oren disguising himself and his kids and the rest of his gang as Tuscans in order to harass the farmers, then selling them on the settler's call subscription because he made bad investments with his water evaporators, took out bad loans from the bank's investment, then took out a loan from Jabba to, to try to pay back the bank loans. It gets a little convoluted for me. I prefer a little bit more of a straightforward story. That's not to say that the story was bad. I try not to say anything is good or bad because, you know, what I like may not be what you like. It's just that this type of story doesn't really appeal to me. I like the characters. I like what some of the characters are dealing with just living in this hard scrabble landscape. And I like the stuff that Kenobi is dealing with in the aftermath of Revenge of the Sith. But a plot line of bad land speculation and then trying to cover it up with bank loans and loans from a crime boss, eh, that's, that's just not for me. But on the whole, I actually did like a lot of it. You know, I know I've been ripping it now for the last few minutes, but uh, I actually did like a lot of the book. One thing I really did like was how Miller had Kenobi use his Jedi powers, but in a way that he kept them hidden from all the settlers until the very, very end when there was no way to hide it from Oren when the crate Dragon attacked. I actually thought that was pretty cool. Like how amazing things would always happen around Clark Kent, but every time Lois looked over there, he was just standing there in his glasses with his old notebook and his pencil. So on the whole, I would say Kenobi is a good book. It is a good read. It's slow in parts. Just go into it knowing that. But if you're the type of person who likes to read things that really gets inside of a person's head, this is a pretty good book for that, at least as far as the Legends line of books go. You know, there's not many in the Legends line that are basically character studies. The only ones that really come to mind right now while I'm sitting here are I, Jedi, and Traitor. But if Obi-Wan Kenobi is one of your favorite characters and you want to get inside his head in that time period right after Anakin's fall, I would say Kenobi is a book that you'd really want to read. Now, let's talk about what in the book could possibly make its way into canon here in the future. I think 
there are plenty of things in this book that can be used as templates for whatever the Kenobi series ends up being here. You know, when they first announced the show, one of the things I thought was that Kenobi was definitely not going to leave Tatooine. However, after the Disney Investor Day announcement in December and hearing about how the a lot of the show apparently has gone through some rewrites from what its initial pitch was and hearing that Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy said Hayden Christensen was coming back to play Darth Vader and it was going to be the rematch of the century I think Kenobi does have to leave Tatooine in the show. I can't see how they can have Darth Vader return to Tatooine and not somehow sense Luke. Of course, I'm not a Hollywood writer or anything, so I'm sure anything's possible. It's just when I try to think it out, that doesn't make sense. So I do think... Kenobi will leave Tatooine in the show. Originally, I didn't think it was going to happen. But if you're bringing Vader back, I don't think you can have Vader get to Tatooine. However, some of the things from this book that I am convinced you're going to see from the show, you're going to see a lot of Kenobi meditating, trying to commune with Qui-Gon Jinn, I'm not sure how much you're going to see Qui-Gon respond. I think we will, because I'm pretty sure Liam Neeson's going to be in it. I don't think we're going to see Qui-Gon. I think we're just going to hear his voice answering Kenobi. But I don't know if that is going to be throughout the entire series, or I kind of think it might be toward the end. Like, Kenobi is practicing. He's trying to learn how to unlock this Force power. And then toward the end of the series, he'll finally hear Qui-Gon answer him back. But you know what? Who knows? I mean, this book takes place immediately after Revenge of the Sith. And from what we have kind of learned about the Kenobi series, it's going to take place roughly eight to ten years after Revenge of the Sith. So almost right in the middle between Episode 3 and Episode 4. But one thing I would like to see is Obi-Wan interacting with other people on Tatooine. You know, whether it's a settlement like the Pika Oasis, whether there are folks there like a widow running the general store, like Annalene Caldwell and her children, And whether there is a big man in town like Oren Galt who's used to having his way and is threatened by how much Annalene pays attention to Obi-Wan, that I don't know. But I would like to see him interacting with some of the people on Tatooine. I don't want to see him just sitting. I don't want to see him just living a life of solitude with the occasional trip out to the Lars homestead to look in and make sure everything is okay. 
if he is interacting with some of the settlers on Tatooine, I would think it would be interesting to see if Obi-Wan can solve some sort of dispute or fix some sort of problem using some of his Jedi skills while keeping them secret, like in this book. I think that'd be kind of cool to see. But I would say the stuff in the book that they could definitely use in canon right now are the scenes where he's communing with Qui-Gon Jinn, or at least trying to commune with Qui-Gon Jinn, and seeing his inner turmoil, seeing his thoughts about how everything went wrong and how he lost his best friend, his feelings about failing Anakin as a teacher, and trying to figure out how he's going to help Luke whenever it's time to help Luke. I think those are the things in the book that we'll definitely see in the show. And of course, they can use any of the characters from the book that they want. I don't think they will, because I do think they want to keep Legends and Canon separate. I mean, we obviously know they use some things from Legends and have repurposed them into Canon, but I don't think that Lucasfilm can mix them too much and have everything make sense. But who knows? Maybe we'll see Annalene Caldwell and Orrin Galt in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series uh, whenever it comes out. I think it's supposed to come out, what, in uh, spring 2022. But we'll see. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you all very much for listening. Again, I'm Aaron Motes. You can contact the show at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or on Twitter at Legends Lounge 1. Coming up in two weeks, I'll talk about another favorite book of a lot of people from the Legends line, Darth Plagueis by James Luceno. So please come back and join me for that. Thank you once again to everyone for listening. Remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. <laughs>